Welcome to the Golf Beneath the Surface podcast, or perhaps welcome back. My name is Raymond Pryor. My areas of expertise are performance psychology, performance neuroscience, and sleep science. And with me is my good friend and co-host Chase Cooper, instructor extraordinaire, sweating it out in the southern Texas heat. Doc, it's hot. It is hot. And it's the bad part is it's still June. It doesn't normally get hot down here till August. Um, the good news is I am trading super hot and super sweaty for pretty hot and dry moving back home to Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's, I don't think we're going to get any reprieve for a while up there either. Tell the people where you're going to be moving to Chase. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's currently the end of June. Um, like we've said, we don't know exactly when these are, these things are going to release, but, uh, I am originally from Oklahoma, born and raised, um, played professionally out of Edmond, Oklahoma, which is North Oklahoma City area. And I uh, accepted a new position, a new director of instruction position at a golf course in Edmond, Oklahoma called Kicking Bird. And Kicking Bird holds a near and dear place to my heart because we used to play a lot growing up and practicing and down there for high school tournaments and in, in the city for high school tournaments we'd play. It always had a lighted range. And the city of Edmond put a large amount of money into it, put over $20 million into the facility, just kind of re redoing everything, the clubhouse, the tee boxes, some of the course. Um, they put TrackMan range in, which is awesome. The The range is 100 yards wide. It's the biggest range in Oklahoma. Um, four Bay Teaching Center, uh, which obviously I'll be, I'll be running. Um, three brand new short game area, chipping greens, a big putting green. Like it is, uh, it is the perfect place to improve your golf game. And, um, you know, we, it'd been in the works for a while and we, um, you know, we grinded on it for a bit and it just felt like the perfect opportunity to get back closer to home. We'll be three hours from home from our parents instead of 10 hours down here. So while we love it down here in Houston, it was, uh, felt like it was time. It's time to move back closer to home and to do it at a really cool opportunity. Like, like uh, kicking bird offers for sure. It's a, it's a bit of a homecoming for you. It's exactly right. And it's such a neat opportunity. This place is, you know, golf is, is um, a huge part of Oklahoma and, and there's, five or six tour players that came from a little, a little high school there in, in North Edmond. Um, and so it's, a, um, it's just a, it's just a cool opportunity. And like I said, for us to be able to, we've been, we've been kind of itching to get back closer to home or, or we've been looking for the right opportunity. And then this one came along and it was, it was game time. So, um, I'll start full time up there about the second week in July. And so, uh, but yeah, we have opening weekend this coming week. So we'll be headed up there and then back and forth a little bit while we move and do all that stuff. So, uh, definitely excited. It'll, it'll be fun. Like I told you off air, this will be the last time that hopefully the last, one of the last times that we, uh, that, that we record in, in my kid's playroom in the back corner of the, of the kid's playroom while we're, uh, while we're grinding through all this. So it's, it's nice that they rent you out a little bit of space to be able to work in. Yeah, if I move the camera around, you'd see some of uh, you'd see an etch a sketch over here, and you'd see uh, you'd see all kinds of play stuff. So they uh, they they know that uh, you know when I kick them out to get out of here in the evening that it's time to time to shoot some golf stuff. Yeah. They uh, they've asked me they they want me to start another podcast with them, so we'll figure out what the what the the subject is going to be. Should mm -hmm. be fun. The play the playroom podcast. That's right. The playroom podcast with the crazy Cooper kids mm -hmm. for sure. How's uh how's how's Chicago? We are currently in a drought. Hopefully, getting some rain this week. But normally, we've had many, many inches of rain at this point during the year, and we've had less than one. So, hopefully, some rain. Uh, we've had some heat too. So we are definitely uh, in summer. Although I haven't been here much, I've been traveling around for work, mostly to different golf tournaments. And uh, right, excited to be home to rest. That your boy needs a haircut and a home cooked meal. And thankfully, Allison came through with uh, home cooked meals the last couple nights. So. She's nice. a far better culinary expert than I am. Uh, I can make a nice grilled cheese, but she can make whatever she wants. So it's been good. That's 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 perfect. Talk talk to us a little bit about you've been out on the road. Obviously, I know you're not going to give us give us specifics or or names, but like, what is it? You know, you've worked with a lot of these players for a while now, and and they they kind of know what to expect from you as far as some of the stuff that that you're going to tell them. But like, what does it look like on the road? during during the middle of the season like obviously there's not a there's not a big break in the seasons anymore right you're playing year-round all the time but what does it look like we're halfway through we're, we're halfway through the year what are you telling these guys yeah i don't uh to, for clarification i don't tell people what to do or how to think um 
But, you know, at this point of the year, it's major season. If you're on the LPGA Tour or the PGA Tour or you've qualified for majors, it's a variety of different methods. So um, that's one of those things where it's it's tournaments that are indeed more important to people than perhaps um, a regular event. And there's a bit of a trickle-down effect from those majors because players who might qualify for that, that then opens up a spot. So if you're on the Epson Tour or the Corn Ferry Tour, you might get a chance to squeak up and play in a PGA Tour event or an LPGA Tour event. Um, and then also it's about at the halfway point through the season. So people are getting a sense of where they are either in the reshuffle or whether they're set for the year, having already accrued enough points and money and, or won a tournament, et cetera. So, um, there's a bit of a mid season check-in kind of a natural breaking point, you know, partway through the majors. Um, and then, then some of that is a bit of a gut check for some people and for other people, it's a bit of a, um, let's kind of keep things going with some minor adjustments, but. I don't necessarily tell them anything. They know that I'm going to ask them a lot of questions to try to get into their experience a little bit. And um, at this point, they seem kind of really doing like a bit of a gut check on what are the things you're doing well, what are the things we might need to adjust, and what is the urgency for such things? You know, without going too far into it, I'll give you an example of two players. One plays on the Epson Tour and the other plays on the Corn Ferry Tour. Saw both of them in the last month. And... The way the points and money are allocated on both of those tours, they're disproportionately given to high finishes. So, for example, if you're on the Corn Ferry Tour, mathematically speaking, you could finish T25 or T30 every single week and not miss a cut, and you will miss your tour card by about 40 or 50 spots, right? Yep. And the same on the Epson Tour. So there's a bit of a discussion about um, perhaps what strategic risk they're willing to take on the course. And again, my job is not to tell people what shots to play or how to play them. But the psychological component to that is if you're going to play aggressively enough that you might shoot low enough to win a tournament, you also have to psychologically bring a level of acceptance that is you might shoot yourself out of it in the first nine holes on the first day. Mathematically, it's easy to calculate and go, well, if you miss four cuts but finish in a top five, that's actually more points and more money than if you made every single cut and finished tied 30th. Um, but there's a certain stability of confidence required to take on that level of strategic risk on those two tours, which the money is allocated a little bit more disproportionately at the top than it is on the PJ tour or the LPJ tour. But needless to say, whatever tour you're playing on, um, the, you're after points and you're after money to try to keep your card or keep your card going. And for many people to try to contend and win tournaments. And there's a certain level of strategic and psychological risk to be able to be that successful. That is tough to stomach sometimes for some people. For sure. And I mean, it's a perfect segue into what we're talking about today with being on time, being present, being grounded. Um, and it's, it's super difficult. It's kind of like the, I don't know if we've talked about this before, but it's kind of like the PAT tour a little bit, like the, the player's ability test for, mm. and this isn't, this isn't completely comparing apples to oranges just because, you know, even though both careers are a little bit on the line, but well, the, the stakes are so much higher at the, at the PGA tour, or the corn Ferry tour, the Epson tour level, but it's, you see a lot of really good players that struggle with the PAT. So the PAT, for those of you that don't know, I'm sure everybody, most of y'all know, but you've got to shoot anywhere between 150 and 160 for two rounds to get your, to, to pass your test to be able to play or to be able to go through the PGA, PGA education and become a class A pro, to be a head pro at a golf course, to be a GM, to be a director of golf, to be whatever you want to be in the, in the PGA. And it's amazing how many pretty good players will get so locked up into a number, right? They'll get so locked up into 155 and then they'll play terrible. And and they would have easily passed it on their own merit if they wouldn't have had, you know, any consequences on the line or whatever it is, right? And so, you know, to me, that's being off time. That's, you know, there's, um, there's too many distractions. And that's kind of the same conversation. I'm sure you're having to have a similar conversation with I'm sure you're having to have with your players. Like you, even though, yes, this is hanging over your head, you've got to eliminate the distractions and still play the smart shot or the best, the, the, um, the best mathematical decision you can make on every, every shot to give yourself the best chance to succeed. Yeah. There's, um, what you're talking about is, um, when, we are competing or in, in any venture, but for the purposes of our podcast, we're talking about golf. Um, our brain and we in our brain know when score counts for us. So if you're taking 
a playing exam or if you're playing in a major or you've played through a Monday and you have your first start on any tour, uh, your brain knows that it counts. And when that happens, our stability of confidence is exposed. And by that, I mean stable confidence is required for us to take the necessary calculated risks in order to play well. When we are unwilling to take those risks, what happens is it's really difficult for us to be present. So if we're really talking about, you use the phrase on time, which is a phrase I use all the time, which is another way of saying being present. You're on time, you're synced with your life and your performance at the time it's actually playing out. There's two components to being present. That's knowing how to be present. That's directing your focus, being able to be aware of when your focus has shifted away from being present and knowing how to bring it back, which is a skill we know how to train systematically. There's another component to being present, which is what keeps us from being present in the first place. And when outcomes matter to us, if our psychological framework is geared in a way that it is designed to try to avoid the outcomes we don't want to happen even before they have played out or to avoid past outcomes that we didn't like happening again before they perhaps play out again in the future, Ultimately, what happens is that's what keeps us from being really being present with our skills, and that's what disrupts them as they go on. So essentially what it means is when score actually matters to us, there's no pretending that it doesn't matter to you. Your brain will sniff through that in no time whatsoever. You're not going to play in a major and tell yourself that it doesn't really matter. It does. And uh, to your point, even with that player's test, the playing test, your livelihood is at stake, and downplaying that is not going to be helpful for us often. And so what it really means is we have to be able to, one, know how to get present and be present when it's time to execute our skills. And two, that means bringing a level of acceptance to the outcomes that we don't really want to happen, because unless we do, we are always going to be multitasking with them and multitasking in this performance standpoint or from in this performance context, Chase is just another way of saying being distracted and in a self-imposed and unnecessary way. If we again refer to flow state, flow state is the optimal state of human functioning. It's a state with no distraction. We are immersed in the task at hand as it's happening. And oftentimes it's more difficult for us to get into flow state when outcomes don't matter for us because there's not enough of the environment keeping us engaged. So it's not the outcomes mattering that keep us from being present. It's our relationship with them that oftentimes keeps us from being present and that a relationship being avoidance of the outcomes that we don't want. Now, to be very clear, strategic avoidance and psychological avoidance are not the same thing, right? So I'm not encouraging players to cut every corner, fire at every flag, take on every hazard, et cetera, because that would be foolish in many situations. But psychological acceptance means that I'm going to pick a shot and when I commit to it, I'm going to be willing to live with any outcome that comes with it, which is tough for us to wrap our head around. But when it comes to the outcomes that we don't want, when we are willing to risk them, meaning perhaps live with them, not that they are for sure going to happen, but if they do, right. we're willing to live with them. All of a sudden, our brain doesn't see them as something that must be entertained and avoided, in which case then now the window for us to actually be present is far wider than it was before. And so if we look at really high performers that are super consistent over time. You're talking the apex predators of the performance world. It, they don't avoid failure. They are willing to accept it. And because they are willing to accept it, they don't fear it. And because they don't fear it, it doesn't just the possibility of it, even before it perhaps plays out, doesn't distract them while they're actually performing. And then that gives them the freedom to go, what do I want to do and how do I want to do it right now? And it's, you know, if you're talking about not overthinking, overthinking often comes from us being off time, either dwelling on things that have already happened or being overly invested in things that have not happened yet. And so there's this weird scalpel's edge that, that high performance often requires for us that stable confidence allows us to balance on. And that razor's edge is outcomes are absolutely important to me. My livelihood is at stake. I'm a competitive person. The outcomes of my performance are very important to me. And I can emotionally and intentionally detach from them because they're not actually happening right now in my performance, whether that's the outcome of a tournament or whether that's the outcome of the shot I'm about to play. 
And it's on this scalpel's edge. You know, we call this a choice point in psychology where you can go one direction or another, which is I can either pursue what I want to happen, willing to risk that it might not work out, or I'm in avoidance mode trying to make sure that the outcomes I don't want don't happen. But again, we know that in thriving settings, this is disruptive to our performance. We start overthinking. Our emotions oftentimes get the best of us. And we start trying to consciously think through skills that we have developed in a way that if we just point and shoot, oftentimes they're a high success rate for us. You know, one of the things that I've really taken from you in our first discussions together was, you know, a lot of the psychologists that I worked with in the past would say how important it is to stay focused, how important it is to stay present, how important it is to stay on time. Obviously, yes, we understand that that's important, but the main the main key for me and my players that I really work with them on is you're going to get distracted. Your brain is, you're going to go off time. Mm -hmm. You're going to go in the past. You're going to go in the future. Your brain is in protection mode the whole time. The key and the art of all this is realizing when you are off time and bringing yourself back. Yeah. Because I, I mean, I, I tell players all the time, I'm like, have you ever played, you know, 18 holes and you got on hole 13 and you were like, you almost had like a matrix experience where it was almost like, oh my gosh, I'm on hole 13 now. I almost don't remember the last three or four holes. Or like, you know, parents that are driving or whatever, they've dri been driving in a car for a, a while and they're like, wait a minute, I just drove five miles. I don't even remember, how did I even get here? You know, it's kind of that, not really deja vu, but it's like an out-of-body experience almost. And so talk a little bit about, you know, connected, connected breathing. Talk a little bit about... Um, you know, some of the tests you have your players do to realize when you're off time and to kind of bring yourself back. Sure. Before that, I'll, I'll just touch on the experiences that you're talking about. You know, you're really talking about what it feels like and how we experience being present when we're actually present. So we can actually classify flow state into kind of two, two areas. There's low flow, which would be like if you're driving your car and your kind of mind is just wandering and you're letting your thoughts do whatever, but you are engaged with the task as it's shaking out. And then the passage of time seems distorted to us, right? So time obviously passed at the rate that time always passes for us, but it seems like it went by really fast, even though in the moment it feels like it's moving really slow for this. And that's also on a neurological level, very um, much a byproduct of it being a high dopaminergic experience for us. High dopamine is just a big way of saying like focus for pursuit. It's a neuromodulator in our brain that is the neuromodulator of pursuit for us. And when we're in high dopaminergic states, there's a distortion of time. Like dopamine plays a significant role in how we experience time. Oftentimes it feels like in the moment things are very slow for us. And then afterward, it seems like it's gone by really quick. So if you're playing golf and all of a sudden you snap out of it, quote unquote, on the 13th hole, it feels like, holy cow, it went by really fast. But of course, that was, you know, two and a half hours ago. Or if you're on a long drive, yeah. those two. Then there's high flow. A high flow is just full-on immersion. This is the flow state that athletes are after all the time, which is high focus, high control. And it feels like everything is just moving so slow that you can make a conscious decision in real time. And what this is often a byproduct is, is we are focused in a way and engaged with our performance in a way that we are undistracted not internally, not externally, whatever. So we are only focused on what is relevant to the task at hand as it is actually playing out. And so our first kind of characteristic of stable confidence is, is do I know how to get at least closer to this state by being on time? On time meaning, can I be grounded and present when it's time for me to actually do the things I need to do to execute my skills? And one of the primary methods for us to systematically train this, both psychologically and neurologically, is through a practice we call mindfulness training. Mindfulness is a big fancy way of saying awareness, but it's a specific type of awareness built on three principles. The first is intention, which basically means I'm paying attention on purpose. So I'm not paying attention reactively. I'm play paying attention proactively. And this is scary for people at first sometimes, because oftentimes we go, well, I don't want to think about the things that might be disruptive to me, including my own thoughts and feelings. Or if I just sweep them under the rug or pretend they're not there, they won't be disruptive to us, which you actually find out eventually they're going to catch up with you, including our own thoughts and feelings. And so if I actually learn to pay attention on purpose, then I am actually paying attention in ways that are on my own terms. 
in which case then my thoughts and feelings or the environment doesn't sneak up on me. And what intention looks like, for example, Chase, if I asked you to say, like, can you pay attention to what your feet feel like on the floor, whether they're in your shoes or your bare feet? So instead of you stepping on something that tells you, ouch, my feet hurt, and then that's a reactive sense of focus, proactive, mindful attention is like, I'm actually going to pay attention. Like, what does the ground feel like under my feet? The second uh, element of mindfulness is acceptance, which is a word we've talked about before. But in this case, acceptance is I'm going to start to see things and experience things, including my own thoughts and feelings, or perhaps distractions in the environment as they are, not what I wish they would be. So instead of me fighting like, well, it should be quieter when I hit a shot, or I shouldn't have negative thoughts, or judging our thoughts and feelings as things that are good and bad, we learn to see them as they are, but not necessarily anything that has to be entertained, and also not necessarily anything that is a fact or a precursor of the future. So for example, if I pay attention to my thoughts and I'm also noticing that I'm thinking about, please, dear God, do not hit this left, that is only a thought about hitting the ball left. It's not a precursor that it's actually going to happen. And it's not a fact. It's only a thought about the possibility of a future event, not the thing itself. What this acceptance allows us to develop, Chase, is what's called cognitive diffusion. Cognitive diffusion is space between ourselves and our thoughts. It's like watching your thoughts as if they are waves from the shoreline rather than actually being in them. When we treat our thoughts and feelings and the environment as things that should or shouldn't be happening, they're good or bad, right or wrong, or I want to sweep them under the rug, oftentimes that's just us in the waves. And then we are getting swept around by whatever thought or feeling we have. And we know for people in high performance environments, it's not that they don't have disruptive thoughts or feelings. They do. People who are really good in those environments learn how to have those feelings and coexist with them because they're not getting dragged around by them. And the way we coexist with them is to accept them as they are, but without adding anything to them by treating them as if they're facts or things that must be entertained simply because they exist. So it's this fluid and flexible relationship with our thoughts and feelings and the environment rather than fighting against it. And the last uh, element of mindful awareness is groundedness, meaning I'm paying attention to things as they are right now. And if we learn to pay attention in this way, we have access to being present, provided that we are our confidence is stable enough. And so what this might look like for us in a practice is basically like a five-minute mindfulness practice. You know, five to six minutes is essentially the minimum dosage. And what it would look like is you learn to pay attention to the physical sensation of your breath. This is what I call a connected breath, or you might say a mindful breath where I'm not paying attention to my breath in order to relax. I'm not paying attention to my breath in order to feel more comfortable. I'm not paying attention to my breath to breathe in a box or an eight by eight or a whatever. I'm only paying attention to how I physically experience my breath in the present moment. So essentially like if I'm paying attention to my breath, it tells me how do I experience this moment that I'm actually in. Some people tell me, Raymond, I definitely experience the physical sensation of my breath or I connect with my breath. It's the rise and fall of my chest or my abdomen. For others, it's I feel air coming in my nose and out my mouth. If you're getting even really down to the like intense levels, it's I feel the air coming in my nose is cooler than the air going out of my mouth because it gets heated while it's in my circulatory system and my respiratory system. For the swimmers I work with, they oftentimes say they can hear their breath because they're underwater and they've got earplugs in. So there are a variety of different sensations where we can connect with our breath. And we're not using our breath again as a means to relax or get comfortable. We're using it as an anchoring point to the present moment. Because if we are actually paying attention to what it physically feels like to breathe in this present moment, that has a massive grounding effect for us. Now, our breath is just one of many different sensory experiences we can clue into in order to be present. You know, you could feel your feet and your shoes. You could feel, you know, the, the friction of your hands if you're rubbing your fingers together. I particularly like the breath, one, because it's always available to us. And two, it's a sensory experience that we can activate on our own. And what it does, it has a pretty profound grounding effect for us. And so if we learn to sit with our breath uh, for five minutes at a time each day, which basically means I'm going to pay attention to where I connect with my breath. 
in this practice, inevitably your thoughts are going to move away from your breath. And if it does, that is a okay. So mindfulness is not a state of non-thinking and it's not a state of Zen. And it's not a state where I'm trying to only focus on how I feel my breath and never turn that sensation off. It's a bit of a uh, rubber band effect in this practice where I learn to connect with my breath, pay attention to what it feels like to be in the present moment. And then when my thoughts inevitably shift away, which they will, I learn to recognize that as just a natural shift in thought. So I'm just noticing that I am off time. And then I use that as an opportunity to allow my focus to return to my breath. So it's essentially breath, which is being present. Notice when it shifts to being something off time, perhaps something important to me, but not actually happening now. And then learn to use that as an opportunity to return to my breath. So essentially I'm prioritizing the present moment, observing when my thoughts inevitably move elsewhere, and then reprioritize being in the present moment. And we know, Chase, that with about 14 days of this practice, we have a drastically different relationship with the present moment. And it's a little bit clunky at first for people. After 30 days, our brain starts to rewire to want to be present more often and to sooner start to proactively notice that when we start to become off time and wants to again to return to being present. So it's not just a psychological practice. It is a rewiring of our brain in a way that it starts to crave being present. And the ripple effect from this, there's just about decades of research showing that the ripple effects of this are essentially innumerable. And in a performance world, if you're talking about human beings being their happiest, healthiest, and highest functioning, when we are present, it's an invaluable means to be able to do so. So there's... Uh, you know, you're seeing that mindfulness is becoming more popular in the last couple of years. That is not because it's the next fad. It's been around for thousands of years. We just now have the means to be able to show how valuable it is in high performance realms, not just in um, the general health and a variety of different areas. So what that looks like on the course then is using a connected breath or probably two before you would actually hit a shot, before stepping into a shot. So you're actually part of your pre-shot routine is legitimately just prioritizing being present by connecting with your breath. And again, that breath is not necessarily to calm down or to relax. It's to let yourself and the moment breathe and actually be on time when you go play your next shot. I love the, it's, we're not breathing to relax. Like I, I'll always ask my, my parents or we'll talk about breathing with, with parents of, of kids. And they're like, yeah, he needs to relax. I'm like, no. Uh, uh, that's not, that's not what the goal is. Um, with regards to the six minutes, um, do you, your players that you've worked with, with longer, do you have them, do you have them do this longer or is it still six minutes once a day? I mean, like what's, where do they get to? Yeah, you can, uh, certain people love adding time to their mindfulness practice. You know, it, it kind of think about it. Like if it was the bare minimum dosage for exercise, some people are going to only want to do the bare minimum. Some people are going to learn to enjoy it and really push it. I would say the vast majority of people that I work with find that six, five to six minutes a day of just connecting with their breath, recognizing when they're not connected with their breath and reconnecting with their breath to be immensely valuable in a series of ripples in their life. Many of them choose to extend their practice either to 10 to 15 minutes or oftentimes several times a day. So they might have a morning mindfulness practice another in the middle of the day to just kind of reestablish being present and on time. And then some of them might actually have a more down-regulating mindfulness practice, which does have a, I will say, relaxation is a bit of a loose word, but that would be more like a body scan mindfulness thing, which we can get into in, in future episodes where the purpose is in part like down-regulating your sympathetic nervous system. But as to your point, when we're under, when we're performing there are times when it's helpful for us to downregulate our sympathetic nervous system, which essentially feels to us like we are calming down. But the primary component for us being composed under pressure is not being relaxed. It is being composed and composed happens by being able to focus on what is relevant in your performance right now. You know, if you ask people who are really good under pressure, we would go, oh, they're so composed. If you hook them up to a heart rate monitor or brain activity, it's going bananas underneath. 
but they are super composed because they know how to generate their focus for an urgency for the present moment. And our breath is an excellent conduit to doing that. But if you're using your breath to relax in times like if you're on the back nine of a major, trying to relax by breathing your way to it, it's oftentimes uh, more harmful than it is helpful. But if you can allow yourself to be amped up quite a bit, but composed, essentially what that means on a neurological level is that you are keeping the areas of your brain that make conscious, rational decisions online. And then because you are present, you can still execute freely without overthinking. Um, But it all revolves around us being in the present moment. So even if you're talking about calming down, you know, we become our sympathetic nervous system. That is the nervous part of our nervous system that gets us elevated. High heart rate, heart breathing rate, you know, the adrenaline system in many ways. That does activate in response to threat, perceived or real. Most of the time when we are entertaining a future that doesn't exist, we are creating perceived threat. And again, that's what keeps us from being present. And when we shift to being present, what oftentimes decreases the amount of perceived stress or perceived threat and anxiety is not that I relaxed via my breath. It's because I shifted from a psychological state that was preoccupied with the future to one that is focused on the present moment right now. So as much as there is research that shows us focusing on our breath does bring more oxygenated air to the um, survival portions of our brain that perceive threat, the primary shift for us to being able to stay composed and perhaps what quote unquote relaxes us is a shift from being off time to on time because in the present moment, again, there can be stress, but there's very little anxiety because again, anxiety is by definition worry about the future. And as we start to train ourselves to be present more often, we start to understand that the opposite of anxious is not relaxed. The opposite of anxious is grounded. The opposite of frustration and anger is not relaxed. It's also grounded. And so there's this counterpoint for both of those in the middle. And when we learn to be present more often, um, we are in a, a psychological time frame that allows us to have full access to our skills because we're not multitasking with the time frames that doesn't exist. Do you do you find with your players like I I, obviously, I don't work with as many tour players as you do. I work with a lot of junior high and high school kids and college kids, good players. But, like, again, I, we talked about this, I think, a couple episodes ago. But I feel like this group has the most difficulty of being on time of any group. You know, again, with technology phones, it's gotten worse for everybody. But I think this group really gets hammered hard with this. Do you find that after those 30 days when their their brain is being rewired that – there and let's just say they do let's just say i have them do it for six minutes a day do you find that their distractions become less like they 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 realize they're like day one day two day three they were they made it might have had a hundred off time thoughts and they had to bring themselves back and by day 30 it might be five or six is it is it easy for them to stay locked in on their breath or no it, it can vary so if you're doing if you're an extended mindfulness practicer meaning it's pretty much a daily practice for you there's a significant amount of research that shows that our brain starts to wire to want to be present more. So there are fewer shifts or if they are, if there are shifts, they tend to be less intense. So I'm able to recognize it sooner. You know, if we think about being off time and the thought processes and, you know, tangents we go off of is kind of like a snowball rolling down a hill. You catch that snowball closer to the top of the hill. It doesn't have as much momentum. It doesn't drag you with it. Right. So we definitely see that for most people, the frequency with which they start to deviate from their breath oftentimes decreases and the intensity with which it also decreases. However, we're not robots. You know, if you have a day where you have no homework, you're just playing golf, everything's great in your life, mom and dad, everything's great. So if you're a high school kid, you might sit down with your breath and you only have you only notice three or four shifts. But if things aren't great with a boyfriend, girlfriend, mom and dad are on your case, you've got 15 tests, you played poorly in your last round, et cetera, you might have 500 shifts in those minutes, which, by the way, is perfectly okay because the bottom line is life and performance happen and it's not necessarily conducive to you focusing, hence why right. we are training it. And so a mindfulness practice where you might catch yourself 
thinking off time or your thoughts deviate away from your breath, meaning the present moment, two or three times, outstanding. If it's 500 times in five minutes, also outstanding. If anything, sometimes those are the most valuable mindfulness practices for us because it gives us that many more reps of noticing that we're off time, recognizing a thought about something that's important to us, but not actually relevant in the present moment and allowing ourselves to reconnect with our breath. So over time, yes, that's like saying, you know, someone who's strength training, do you expect them to get stronger and fitter over time? Definitely. Are they also going to have some really difficult workouts along the way where their body might not feel great, their recovery wasn't awesome, and they're just having a hard time getting through that workout? Yeah. Even the most mindfully trained have those types of practices. Um, But what happens is those two days are not, one is not good and one is not bad. Both of them are just different variations of the same practice that still offer the same benefit, which is be present, observe when you're not, be present again. And we learn to toggle back and forth between these because sometimes you're going to play around a golf where there are very few distractions, internal or external, for whatever reasons. Most rounds of golf are going to have a variety of distractions, internal and external. Most golf courses are designed to create visual distractions for you, in which case then we can start to recognize those as distractions, as things that are part of the environment, but not necessarily relevant. One of the things I love about this is um, like I used to always hear the argument from parents or even from kids. Well, you know, he has ADD, he has a hard time focusing. And I'm like, look, now I'll tell him, look, I need 700 seconds from you uh, around. I need 10 seconds a shot, essentially. Right. And you're going to hit it 70 times. Some of those will be tapping. Some of those will be whatever. I need I need 10 seconds a shot. And so. I know you're going to get distracted. The key is not to be locked in for four straight hours. Like it just doesn't, it's, it's impossible. Right. But th- the key is to the art in this is to realize when you are off time, when you're five seconds ahead, five seconds behind an hour ahead, an hour behind, whatever the answer is, when you're still on hole one and it's hole 10, like you have got to realize that and bring yourself back. And to me, that's, that's the beauty of this because, and I love that you said, like, even in a six minute period, if you, if you bounce back and forth 500 times, that's a, that's a pretty good skill being able to bring yourself back for every one of those distractions. And I, I just love, cause I think a lot of people think of mindfulness training as we're just going to go sit in our hut up in Tibet and be, be Buddhists or be monks or whatever. And like, that's not really what it is. It's, it's not relaxation training. It is mindfulness training. Mm -hmm. It is, I I like to tell people too, like you almost have to view your, your mind as like the sun. And so there's going to be solar flares that keep popping off. And the, the idea is to grab it and bring it back. And like, just always, you're always, when it's time to, to be mindful and to focus and hit a golf shot, You've got to corral your mind. You're like herding sheep. Like you've got to corral it until you're ready to go and ready to fire versus getting distracted and being off in the boonies somewhere. And and then who knows what happens with the result. Yeah. And what you're alluding to, Chase, is is quite often there are two reasons we get distracted. One is we don't really pay attention to our thoughts to know that they're happening and they're dragging us around. So essentially what it means is we are unaware of what our thoughts are, what the environment's providing us. And again, Awareness is super important for us, for especially in the performance realm, because it's the first line of information processing for processing for us. So if I'm unaware of my thoughts that are either off time, I'm in the future, or whatever, and I'm not paying attention, I'm just wherever they go, I have to follow. So like I said, sun flare happens, and then I've followed it because I'm not even paying attention to whether what I'm paying attention to. And then the other reason that is difficult for us is we see that and we don't know how to engage with it in a way or disengage with it in a way that allows us to be present. So that's, I see a sun flare and I can't see it as, oh, it's just a sun flare. No big deal. In the same way that if you have a thought about something walking to your ball, also no big deal because you're not actually executing your shot. And as you alluded to, I don't need to be focused for five and a half, four and a half, five and a half hours during a round of golf. I need to know how to focus for 10 to 15 seconds at a time when it's time to execute a shot. And the good news is, is when we train mindfulness, that becomes more conducive. And also we are tend to be more present during the entire experience without us necessarily trying to have to force it as often because we're doing that work outside of uh, the performance itself. The other thing I remember playing with you last year and we were talking about 
the connected breathing technique. And what I've found since doing that is I don't need it every shot. I don't feel like I need those two breaths to like really get grounded. I feel like when I feel myself wondering, it's a tough shot. It's a, say it's a, a tough pitch shot that I've been having some problems with first tee. I remember even I said, do you still do this? And you're like, yeah, first tee. I've, you know, I, you felt a little, you told me you felt mm -hmm. some nerves on the first tee playing with a group of guy, group of us or whatever. And I, and I love that, like being able to use that to, to get back into the right, right state of mind that you're, that you're going for, get back into being grounded then you can go through your acceptance stuff. Then you can go through being on target or, or having the precise game plan. Like, again, I love little systematic approaches to help my players get through certain situations to be able to have that fire extinguisher to put out the fire versus just saying, you know, again, all the old adages, hey, go relax or hey, believe in yourself or any of that stuff, any of the stuff that's that's nonsense. And so I would, you know, it's almost like Jason Day used to do this when he was out playing. He was doing a lot of the um, focus band stuff way back in the day, but you would see him close his eyes and take like six or seven breaths. Like he would really take his time. And I, I like not, I don't know exactly what he was doing, but I like that, that aspect of it's the 18th hole. I got a one shot lead to go win the golf tournament. I'm going to make sure I feel myself, my mind wondering if I hit the fairway, then I'm going to win all the, all the self-talk that we're going to fight against. And I love the idea of, two connected breaths, feel my breaths, feel my, the air coming into my lungs, my, my lungs expanding, make sure I'm grounded, make sure I'm aware of what I'm doing. I'm right here and then go hit the shot and, and accept it and, and, and see what happens. Yeah. You hit the nail on the head. So the great news is when we start to really train our mindfulness, um, one, we have a tendency, like I said, it trains our brain and us to want to be present more often. So we don't always need our breath as the anchor to do that. Um, at the times when it's valuable for us because we've recognized like, well, I'm way off time here or I'm ahead of myself, it can be immensely valuable and we can play with it however we need to. Um, when we're under pressure, I, I recommend to people to begin with to be super consistent with it. Like the, that's, that means like before every shot in your actual round of golf. And then you can reel back at the times like if, you know, you're feeling super grounded and you're like, yeah, I, I would use my breath here, but I don't really need to because I'm grounded. I'm ready to go then by all means. But if we're really talking about when we're under pressure, it's very easy for us to start getting ahead of ourselves or to be start dragging behind. And uh, the more we use that breath to be present, again, not to relax or be comfortable, but to actually be grounded. Again, what we're doing is we're giving ourselves more access to our skills because we're actually focused on the moment that we can use them. Okay, so let's talk about some of the stuff I've been trying to do with my players now, like on the range, to create some of these some of these environments, these these tough situations. Um, one of the things I'll do is, you know, they'll they'll talk about, hey, you know, I've I've been having a hard time finishing rounds off. You know, I'll be even par with a couple to play and mess up, or you know, I had a chance to win this tournament and just kind of messed up. And so I'll a lot of times I'll go through a situation where I'm like, okay, you got to pick a fairway out there and it can be whatever target they want to have. Okay. The fairway is this wide. It's pretty wide, 60, 70 yards. No big deal. Okay. Give me, give me, give me the shot shape. Give me, give me what you're trying to hit. Okay. We're trying to hit a little draw right off the right flat, right side, a little draw to the middle. And then I'll say, okay, go through routine. And, and right, right when they get behind it and they start to step into it, I'll start giving them a quick little scenario. Like, all right, one shot lead. You know, you pulled the last one, you know, one shot lead, you're, you're two under par. If you, if you may, you know, just trying to get those, some of those distractions in. And it's funny because I've had some success. Like they realize really quickly how important it is for them to make those free grounded golf yeah. swings. And, and a lot of times I'll start the process by right after they hit a really good one. I'm like, you know, I'll let them hit a few and then they pound one. I was like, that was perfect. Right. Oh yeah. That felt amazing. And then I'll use that as the baseline and they kind of, it's almost like a light bulb goes off. They kind of look at me like, man, I wasn't, that wasn't a bad golf swing. I wasn't anywhere near all I could think. I couldn't drown you out. I couldn't drown you out. And my message to them is always, that's your self-talk. Those are the distractions that hit you when the consequences, um, when the stakes get higher. Um, and, and with my players, I've worked with a bunch. I'll get a little deeper in that. Hey, you lot, you, you blew the last tournament, you know, you, you did the same thing. Here we go again, you know, and I'll kind of push the, push the envelope. Obviously I'm, these are, these are kids I've got really good relationships with, but I'm trying to recreate those distractions that they're going to feel and, 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 and experience when they're out there playing. What are, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, what you're doing is you're recreating how easy it is for us to be able to start focusing on and thinking about things that are not relevant to the shot at hand. Like we said, the outcome of any shot or a tournament 
and perhaps how a previous outcome has shake, shaken out for us are very important to us. They are not relevant right now. One, because the first one, because they have already happened and therefore they are over making them irrelevant. They were relevant when they were happening, not relevant anymore. And any outcome that hasn't happened yet is also not relevant because it hasn't happened yet. Important to us. Again, I don't know any golfer that the outcome of any shot or a round or a tournament is not important to them. But every golfer will also tell you, I started thinking about outcomes of shots either from the past or in the future. While I was trying to play a shot right now, or perhaps the outcome of the shot that I haven't actually played yet in a way that distracted me from being able to do it. And so what you're doing is you're essentially acting as their thoughts. So the waves, if we're going back to our shore and ocean analogy, and you're creating waves for them to either get washed away in or learn to step out of. And our mindfulness practice is what teaches us to step out of those waves. One, because we pay attention on purpose. What is, what is my wave situation right now? So instead of me getting swept into it reactively, I'm proactively asking, am I or am I not in the water? Two, if I'm in the water, I don't go, oh, you shouldn't be in the water. You shouldn't be thinking this. You shouldn't have this thought. Because if you've come up to a hole that's eaten your lunch every single time, or you're one fairway away from perhaps sealing a tournament, of course you're going to have those thoughts. Like it's the dumbest thing I've ever heard when people are like, just don't think about something. Like get out of here with that right. noise, right? Right. And so you're paying right. attention. And then when you have those thoughts, instead of fighting them or trying to ignore them, which we can't in the same way that if you're talking in my ear while I'm trying to swing the golf club, I cannot ignore that because it's actually happening. But I can learn to coexist with it in the present moment by just treating it as a noise. You know, my friend David, uh, yeah. my friend yeah. David is an engineer and he's explained this thing. It's like signal to noise ratio. So if you're on like an old radio there's the signal is like the stations in high high fidelity and high def and the space in between where things get a little jumpy and you're kind of between you're like that's noise right well it's similar for us in a performance realm and in our own mind like the ocean is the noise the the, the shoreline is the signal and for us the present moment is signal being off time in our imagination of past events and future events is just noise for us again Time to think about and reflect and learn from our past, undoubtedly. Time to plan for the future. Perhaps ask some questions about what do I want to do in certain situations and plan ahead. But our performance happens right now. That's the signal. And so what our mindfulness training and anchoring to our breath and learning how to connect to it or perhaps disengage from the types of thoughts that you're creating for your players when you're talking at them on the range is you're learning to pick apart what's noise and what's signal. And as we as human beings, when we orient to signal, when we get on that station, we move at a high frequency. And that by that, I mean we're moving at a frequency that is in tune with our performance and when we have full access to our skills. We don't need to be comfortable to do it. We don't need to be relaxed to do it. We don't need to be certain to be able to do it. But when we right. are present, again, none of those features, relaxation, comfort, and certainty are foundations of flow state the number one element in flow state is immersion in the task at hand as it's happening so that's where i love i love the fact that you've said you call it on time and on target now where you know i've always told people it was after after working with you the last year or so it's always been on time acceptance and game plan mm -hmm. Do you think that, like, to me, the 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 awesomeness of the connected breathing is the fact that my brain is locked into what is physically happening with my breath. So I am, call it focused, for lack of a better word, I am staying focused on to something. I'm you, not going blank. You are focused on what it feels like to be in the moment that you're actually in. Again, like just saying okay. to yourself, be present, unless you have a, right. a, a foundation of training yourself to do so is oftentimes a futile um, attempt to be present, right? That's like me just telling you, but, you got to be focused or you got to be confident. Like if you haven't trained that, those are just words. But if I've correct. trained myself no, to tune in to how I physically experience the present moment, then I have something tangible to anchor to with my, and you're right, with your focus. And when we do that, then the transition is just, to, okay, well, what do I want to do and how do I want to do it right now? 
because I, I guess my question is is too yeah my question is if you're on the shoreline and you hear the waves so that's that's you on the range right now and i'm talking smack to you and i'm trying to get in your head right you can drown out the noise but i feel like if you don't if you're not on target like if you're you're not your attention mm -hmm. you're hearing me but you're you're you don't have enough attention on what you're trying to do on the task at hand then it becomes much harder for your brain not to get locked into the noise so that's where i love the on target stuff because i feel like if if you're on the shoreline trying to walk in a straight line or or you're trying to trying to pay attention to the seagulls it's much easier if you can see your in here and 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 see the seagulls it's easier to drown out the noise so do you do you agree with that like the attention side of it makes it much easier to stay on time knowing what we want to pay attention to in the present moment certainly helps right so you could okay. use I mean, golf as a target sport and there's a bunch of research that essentially shows that the more or target oriented we are that the more our skills are executed in a way where we don't have to think about executing them as much. Now, again, this is going to vary based on your skill level. Right. 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 We've talked about so, thoughts and different right. stuff. So, yeah. but it might be, so I usually say OTOT, which is on time on target for other, depending on your skill level or for other things, it'd be really, it's on time and on task. So again, flow state immersion yeah. in the task at hand in the present moment. So it could be on time and on target, could be on time and on task, whatever that might be. But what it means is I'm paying attention to what I'm doing when it's actually happening. And for us, it's far more difficult for us to pay attention to what we're actually doing if we're not in the time frame that it's actually happening psychologically. And then, of course, knowing what the task at hand is and being really clear on that also helps. And when you put those two things together, again, now you have alignment psychological alignment, meaning I'm focused on the thing I'm doing when I'm actually doing it. And just like in a golf setup in a golf swing, alignment matters. Right. So one, one more question about on time. I've had success in the past. My players have had success in the past. You hear Tiger have success in the past about almost setting goals for the future. And then like, like I'm going to go win that golf tournament. And then they go do it or like the almost the feeling of like, I knew I was going to make that putt beforehand mm -hmm. or some, some future thoughts like that. I remember I played really bad in a college tournament in San Diego at a, at a course called the farm down where, where Phil Mickelson played, plays a lot at. And it's a really tough golf course. And I hit it all over the map my sophomore year. And I, I kind of marked that, that, that tournament the next year on my calendar. Like I'm going to go get revenge and I'm going to go play well. And I did, um, there's, it seems like there is some power and has been some, some good success in, in kind of that foreshadowing type, type idea. What, are, what does the research say? What are your thoughts on that? There's something to be said about us as human beings clarifying what it is that we want to do and how we want to do it, right? It creates direction. It creates purpose. It creates clarity for us. Um, where I think people get wrapped up in is... Uh, there's a big difference between being really crisp and clear about what you want to do, how you want to do it in the future, perhaps, and needing to feel a sense of certainty to do that. Because as there are times, undoubtedly, that you're standing over a putt and you're just like, I just know this is going to go in. And sometimes we make those putts, but it's a fleeting feeling for us often. And so what I would say is having a really clear vision or, um, even you might even use the word goal for the future can really help us start to clarify what action is required right now to start to move toward that, which again, future experiences, future outcomes for us are really important. Every single golfer I work with, the objective for every tournament they play is to shoot the lowest score they can and try to win the tournament. But because those future outcomes are not controllable, the most agency, agency meaning influence over our own performance and our own lives always comes from being present. Now, again, you're going to want to plan how you're going to play that course. You're going to want to plan how you might handle a couple situations. And of course, the outcomes are important to you. But any future outcome can only be influenced, not controlled, but influenced by the present moment and what we do in it, period, end of sentence. And so... The future holds important events and experiences and outcomes for all of us. Our chances of experiencing those depend significantly upon how present we can be when rubber hits the road. 
So let's let's do a quick recap of we've talked about stable confidence. We've talked about the importance of having a high level of acceptance, marrying acceptance to give ourselves a chance, you know, give ourselves freedom to explore, right. freedom to freedom to fail, freedom to succeed. Um, and then the only way to really do that is if we are grounded, if we are on time, if we are in the present moment. And then there is a bit of attention that needs to be that will make it easier for us to do this if if our attention is on the task at hand, on task, on target, a precise game plan. Did I did I get it right? Yeah. I mean, essentially, are you really crisp and clear about what it is that you want to do or pursue? Are you bringing a level of acceptance to the possibilities, not the assured things, but the possibility of things that you don't want to experience or perhaps have happened? That's our acceptance. And again, acceptance is tough for us because our natural default reaction to the things we don't want to experience is to meet them with resistance. And in a survival-based setting, that's super valuable for us. But in a thriving-based setting, what it does is it creates multitasking between avoidance and pursuit. And we know that we thrive better when we are pursuing and not trying to avoid at the same time, right? So you're talking the elements of stable confidence. It's a crisp and clear understanding of what it is that you're pursuing and how you want to pursue it. Two, bringing a super high level of acceptance, psychological acceptance to your experience, both the experience and the outcomes, and then being grounded on the task at hand when it's happening. So that allows future outcomes and experiences to be super important to us without us being dragged around by them at a time frame when they don't actually exist in. And if you really, really talk about it, like we can only pursue the future outcomes we want by being in the present moment more often. And we only have freedom to actually do that if we're willing to possibly experience the things that we don't want. There's not a golfer on the planet who will tell you, I play better when I'm trying to not hit terrible shots and hit should hit good shots at the same time. Right. And it feels terrible for us too. Like we're just caught in between two worlds. And so to go back, nope. yeah, as I was gonna say, to go, go to go back to our definition of stable confidence, it is self given permission to perform freely without a guarantee. And that permission and that lack of a need for a guarantee comes from acceptance. And then when you are present, you can go, what do I want to do? And how do I want to do it right now? And one thing, if I asked any golfer in the world, what time frame do you play your best golf in? It's always the present moment. It's not a coincidence. It's basically how our brain operates. And if I also asked you what time frame, psychological time frame, is golf most enjoyable to you, not necessarily the easiest or the most comfortable, but most enjoyable, it's also when we are present again, because it's a high dopaminergic state. That's why flow state is so enjoyable for us. It feels so good. It's just immersion in what we're doing when it's actually happening with zero self-imposed distractions, which is a high dopaminergic state, which is super motivating. Our skills are executed freely, which makes it that much more enjoyable. And it stacks the deck in our favor to execute our skills well enough to oftentimes get the outcomes that we want. And so you add those things up, of course, flow state is the optimal state of human functioning. We don't need to be there to be able to perform well and do so consistently. But it's not a surprise that the two uh, primary elements of stable confidence are groundedness and acceptance, which are the two primary elements of flow state as well. Guys, for y'all listening at home, go back and listen to that 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 last little speech, the last two or three minutes of of what Raymond just talked about, because it is so incredibly important. We've talked about it a lot in the last three or four episodes, but it it is helped my game. It's helped my players' game. I wrote down again, no guarantees. There are zero guarantees, and then I also put you're not going to trick your brain. Your brain's going to sniff out the BS. You can't just tell yourself you're the best player in the field and you're going to believe it. You can't change your grip to, you know, to, to just eliminate the yips. Like you've got to have a high level level of acceptance. You've got to give yourself permission yeah. to explore. Yeah. The, the acceptance, so acceptance is what allows us to let go of the need for a guarantee. And as you just mentioned, our brain sniffs out when score matters to us, it knows. It also knows there's no guarantees when score counts. 
And the best way our brain knows, based, again, based on how it's designed, the best way it knows to try to create a guarantee is to try to go into survival mode when we're trying to thrive. That's why we play scared or we play hesitant or we play tight is because we're trying to create yep. a guarantee that the ball will go here or won't go here or that I won't have this experience or an absolutely will have this one. And the bottom line is once our brain figures out, it can't create that guarantee. It just keeps trying and trying and trying and trying. Hence all your overthinking, you're overly emotionally involved and it becomes this really frustrating experience more than just golf is difficult, but in a way where we pile it on ourselves, you know, it's not uncommon that uh, players will tell me like I got off to a terrible start and then all of a sudden I started playing well. And typically what happens is they stop trying to avoid getting off to a bad start or playing poor golf. And then all of a sudden they start playing more freely. Now, again, easier said than done, but when we understand, but that still provides the framework and the mechanisms for being able to play freely from the jump, which is letting go of the guarantee that it's going to go the way I want to then you can pursue it going the way that you want to. It's a. It seems counterintuitive to us, but again, based on how yeah. our brain is designed, the hardware that we're working on, it makes total sense. I can't screw up anymore, so now I'm going to let go and go play. And that's why the a lot of times the there's eighty sixty eight, there's forty four thirty five. Right. It happens. It happens all, all the, the time, time at the at the low at the lower levels and, and really all levels. Yeah. Um, guys at, at GBTS podcast at BTS underscore mindset mindset at chase Cooper golf. Take us home. That'll be us for us this week. Uh, Pretty soon. We'll ha start having some guests on. So stay we'll tuned. Start we'll have some uh, people who are very knowledgeable about golf uh, beneath the surface and their respective areas. So they'll be looking forward to that in the future as well. That's exactly right. All right, doc. Thanks. We'll see you next time. All right, guys, be well.